welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? I'm excited. Very excited. I feel like most of the time when you ask me how I'm doing, the answer is excited. But yeah. I mean it this time. Yeah, you're usually pretty bedraggled, honestly. <laughs> but I pretend to be excited. Yes. Uh, ask me how. Uh, here, here's This is what's going to what happens at work every day. Okay. Ask me how I'm doing. How you doing, David? Fantastic. I say that at work because I want, uh, uh, that's, that's the, the, that's what I want to put out there. Nothing speaks positive vibes. Nothing speaks more to the, the fact that your coworkers don't really know you than the fact that you say fantastic and they don't immediately say, stop being an asshole. (laughs) Like if you said that to me for real, I would say, come on. Yeah. Uh, Um, but no, I'm excited because of all, and I mean it this time because of all the things the fun things on the horizon here at battleship retention. Yeah. We literally were standing out on the, on the deck. Yeah. Of the battleship. Right. Sure. At the, uh, aft stern stern, uh, thing. Um, and, uh, we're looking out to the horizon. We're seeing some fun stuff coming up. Yes. Uh, such as what? Well, there's an iceberg in the form of, uh, some more commentaries. Wait, no. <laughs> I- icebergs are bad. <laughs> what? What's up? Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, so uh, we've got some commentaries that are absolutely going to sink us, right? That's a good thing. Uh, oh, man, this metaphor has gone. <laughs> it's run aground. Yeah, that's what's happened. <laughs> good one. So, okay. Uh, so as we mentioned in our, in our um, uh, movie journal this week, we are going to be recording another round of marathon commentaries, this time... Uh, zombie themed. We will be talking about the original 1968 Night of the Living Dead. We will be talking about uh, the 1978 Dawn of the Dead. We will then be talking about Day of the Dead. And then we'll be talking about Zack Snyder's 2004 remake of Dawn of the Dead. So we will be recording those in early September and they will be made available only a couple days after that. So, uh, you know, as, uh, as our friend Jimmy Pardo would say, get your finances in order yeah, and take the time to, uh, you know, purchase or rent those on uh, DVD or Blu-ray so that, uh, when the time comes and these are made available, you can buy them immediately and then watch them the way we did all in, all in one day. And so you can get <laughs> just as punchy as we do by the end of it. But, uh, we've got some good guests line up. Uh, lined up some guests that can speak uh, fairly authoritatively about horror and about zombie movies. So I'm very excited for that. And so that'll be, be on the lookout for that in uh, early September. And uh, while people are waiting for that to come around, what can they do with their time and their, their fingers and their keyboards? What they can do is they can email me Tyler at battleship pretension.com. You have through the end of August to do this. And I want you to uh, submit your list of the best Actors and actresses of all time, movie actors and actresses. Thank you. Uh, they don't have to be. Uh, they don't have to be currently active. They can be, you know, long since dead. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. Uh, so what I want you to do is you're going to submit ten total, but it'll be five actors, five actresses ranked, please, from five to one. One being the absolute tip top. So uh, please do that as soon as possible. Um, but if you need some time, as a number of listeners have said, uh, that they really want to work this out, uh, you have until August 31st, uh, and then we will, uh, reveal the list in September, but it'll be very exciting. Looking at the submissions already, this, uh, this is fascinating. There are, you know, in some, 
in in like the top categories, they're kind of the actors that you expect. Uh, not categories. In, in like the top two slots, you draw, you get to number three, and they're actors that like, yeah, sure, the, the, these are amazing actors. I did not realize that there was this much regard for them. Um, That's exciting. I look it forward to it. It is very exciting. Yeah. So, and it makes me real. And it makes me realize, like, oh, I need to see more stuff by this actor because I am mostly unfamiliar. So, all right. Um, now, before we uh, before we move in uh, onto the uh, our advertisements, mm-hmm. um, you know what I spent a lot of my day doing while I was while I was I was at work. You know, mm-hmm. had a lot of stuff to you know paperwork emails to send to and fro things are all balled up at the head office sure um needed something to listen to um did you spend your day listening to president barack obama's summer playlist i did not did you were you aware of this no don't get me wrong i think it's adorable what 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 is it it's he has two playlists one for daytime one for nighttime and it's just here here's what the president's into these days and um, I do think it's adorable. I think uh, if you, I mean, it has a lot of good stuff. I think the daytime mix is better than the nighttime mix. I'm not here to be a music critic here sure. because I'm very ill-suited for that. Um, what I'm here to, to talk about is, uh, okay, President Barack Obama is clearly our biggest pop culture, most pop culture savvy president, at least in our lifetime. No question right? about it. Um, and... I don't believe for a second that he really sat down and put together this playlist. Someone else put these, he approved them probably about 18 other people approved them before it even got to him. Um, the, the, uh, I, I don't believe for a second, but we're cool with it. And I think because music is something that you can listen to while you're working. Yeah. Can you imagine if the president, like at the end of December, put out a like top 20 movies of 2015 list? He does. He was asked, this is what you got me thinking of. He and his wife p- said their favorite movies of last year. And I remember, remember him saying The Martian. The Martian, which made me roll my eyes. Not because it's bad, but because just like, that is the safest answer I've ever heard. I don't know if that's true. I think that's a very much, it's very much an Obama presidency movie. And I think that, uh, I think that that's a, uh, diplomatic and politically astute choice for him but i don't think it's necessarily as safe as your thing i, I think it is diplomatic it furthers his agenda diplomatic um, and politically I, astute is to me safe <laughs> okay you know he didn't throw out i can't even remember what came out last year i, I would give an example but yeah. i can't he didn't I, say bone tomahawk right or youth or youth, he, he yeah. wasn't super into youth but i was like he goes like three out of four but can you imagine if the president put out a list of like like a blocker or whatever that'd be great no but it would i think there would be an uproar like how much time is the president spending watching movies um is it being president kind of a 24-hour job uh does the president have time i wouldn't think that i'd be excited you know um i think it's silly and i am clearly i am more into president barack obama than you are sure um uh, I will never, I will never fully, uh, give in any sort of, uh, attaboy or tacit approval to any sitting president ever, because that is against my sure. philosophy of being an American and participating in our process. Um, uh, every president, every elected official could always be doing better than they are doing. Yes. And so maybe because I appreciate, I come at it from that point of view, it does seem silly to me 
uh, harmless but silly that the president is putting out a list of daytime and nighttime summer jams. See, and I feel like, you know, and uh, so this is about the current president, but I think he has set a new, maybe not necessarily. I think for the most part, he has set a new expectation of what politicians and specifically presidents or presidential candidates have to do, which is they need to be at least vaguely aware of pop culture. This is not a, there's not really, it's a thing we kind of had with Clinton a little bit, but not really. And then with Bush, it was like, okay, baseball and sports. Right. Were were his thing. But like now, because I think, you know, Obama was younger and that sort of thing. Um, so I think now will be, it will be an expectation. And so I will say this regardless of who the president is. Uh huh. And this is a thing that we actually thought of doing an episode about like a year ago. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, it just kept getting pushed, and then, frankly, I forgot about it until about mm, four minutes ago, um, which is uh, any time a politician, much less the one that is the most powerful in the world, any time he, he shows that he knows all the right things to do uh, culturally, uh-huh. be suspicious. Yeah, because, I, well, I'll always be suspicious. But, like, it's like, I like this guy. He was on Mark Maron. Okay. <laughs> What do you think about his policies? Now, you might like his policies, and that's fine, but, you know, this is not a guy who, like you said, he went through 18 people before this list was revealed, and then that same way, he's not going to go on between two ferns and just speak off the cuff. Like, he has an agenda, and he's going to use pop culture to his agenda, and you think, like, man, this president's pretty cool. He wants you to think that. That's why he's doing it. Yeah. You know, no matter who it is. Yeah. Just always be suspicious when you're when if you find yourself thinking, let's put it this way. This is a guy I want to have a beer with. That was the big thing with George W. Bush. Anytime you're thinking that about a president, beware. (laughs) Okay, good. So, yes, Um, that's uh, let's let me let me take off my Guy Fawkes mask. Um, (laughs) So, okay. why do we say this shit right before it's time? We didn't say anything controversial just now. Did we not? No. We encouraged Americans to be critical and participate in the process and the American democratic experiment uh, in a clear-eyed way. With no, We don't, did not lean in either direction at any time. Okay. All right. I just... I don't, I don't, we essentially said rock the vote. Just right. in a way more uh, obscurist... Uh, sure. way, and bat- very battleship retention type of way. That's true. <laughs> I just worry that sometimes I sound like John McAfee. Okay, moving on. That can't possibly be true. Um, all right. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Right now, Mubi is kicking off its Direct from Locarno series. During the current festival, Mubi will be showing past gems from the 2015 festival, such as... I want to make sure I get uh, the pronunciation of these right. I apologize. Such as uh, Los Hongos from uh, Colombia, The Movement from Argentina, and Kopec from Switzerland. Also featured, and this struck me as particularly interesting, also featured is Pierre Leon's Du Remy Du, a comedic adaptation of Dostoevsky's The Double. 
Oh. And I saw Richard A. Wadi's version, and I loved it tremendously. Yeah. So this intrigues me quite a bit. Uh, so there is also a special offer for listeners, Battleship Pretension. Uh, you can try Mubi free for one month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com. This is important. Slash Battleship to redeem now. And uh, you also, while you're on the internet, you want to... Um, wait, is it... Is it internet or is it interwebs? If it's if you say interwebs, I'm going to kill you. Okay. All right? I just, I feel like I've heard it so much, I'm not entirely sure which one is the right one anymore. I do think some people say it instinctively now, uh-huh. and I hate it so much. <laughs> so much. Yeah. Oh, you and I are on the same page here. Um, yeah. So, uh, internet. When you're on there the internet, go. I'm pretty sure is. I'm uh, still on World as, Wide Web. That's uh, what I say. As long as we're sure it hasn't been officially changed to, to interwebs. All right, have we looked that up? <laughs> Has Marion Webster? Do, like, yeah, yeah. Do we have to wait it? for the new next year's OED to come out <laughs> and just describe? Yeah, what are the uh, new words uh, every year? Right, there's new words, and this is there. Okay. The, yeah, yeah. There, uh, new, uh, this year it'll be woke and interwebs. Um, and uh, anyway, <laughs> I have no idea where the fuck I'm going. Uh, if you're on the internet uh, and you're looking for some earbuds and who isn't, uh, you go to tweakedaudio.com where you go, where, where you get professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. Uh, as I always say, they look great and they sound great. And the, both those things are important. You want to look your best while you're, uh, while, while you're bobbing your head or rocking out or whatever it is you're doing, listening to Battleship Retention. Uh, but you also want it to sound great and Tweaked Audio has you covered on all fronts there. So if you go to Tweaked audio.com they have these earbuds at a low low price but if you um put in the extra effort at checkout and uh use the offer code pretension you'll get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Uh, I think, um, uh, well, I think that you should start the episode because this is your your topic. Okay. This is my baby. So uh, <laughs> last week, I was thinking about this as a top of the show discussion, but we chose not to do it partially because we had so much material to get to with yeah. West. Um, but then also, uh, both you and West uh, suggested that that it should be its own episode. And it's one that we might have even talked about before, but I feel like if we did, it's been long enough ago that it definitely deserves to be discussed again. And that is the idea of studio interference and the role that it plays in not merely movies, but also talking about movies. Yes, that's that's the part that really uh, yeah. uh, inspired me to want to do an episode about this. In this Hitchcock class that I took, this is not what's, what sparked this. What sparked it was Suicide Squad. But in this Hitchcock class that I took, um, the, first, the first big discussion we had was Alfred Hitchcock as seen through the lens of the auteur theory. The second big discussion we had is how he's problematic for the auteur theory, at least some of his movies, uh, most notably Notorious, which was made... Most notoriously. Oh, most infamously notorious. <laughs> um, 
that was a film that, yes, obviously Alfred Hitchcock uh, played a big part in making it. It is his film, but the writer was heavily involved. The producer was heavily involved. I mean, it was it wasn't necessarily made by committee, but there was a lot going on. It's it would be hard to say that that film was made with a singular vision, and it definitely goes against the image that we all have of Hitchcock who said like, once the storyboards are done, the movie is done. Like Mm -hmm. this is not that at all. There were reshoots that were done ultimately resulting in a movie that is, if not perfect, near perfect. Uh, Notorious is astounding. Um, and so, uh, and so, as I said, the studio was, was involved. I think they they could only be involved so much because I think uh, Alfred Hitchcock had a fair amount of control, but um, but they were involved and and since then it's gotten me thinking about the you know I I, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a strict auteurist but I'm naturally more inclined to think in those terms, um, but when the time comes to talk about Suicide Squad which is officially directed by David, written and directed by David Ayer, mm-hmm. and a film that I don't enjoy, I cannot, in good conscience, blame him for the mess that the movie is. So, like, but that's only because of what you know. That's because of what I know. And, and I so, don't think that's... See, I think my thinking on this subject is mostly just about making it easier on myself. Okay. Because it's just it's just pragmatic. It's mm-hmm. easier to talk about a movie, um, uh, and it's more clear cut to talk about the movie as it exists and not bring in hypotheticals. Which is why I am generally um, not interested in a very popular nerd top film nerd t- um, discussion topic, which is uh, the movies that never were. You know, right. like Jodorowsky's Dune. Yeah. Like I don't care. Uh, it doesn't exist. What is the point? Why are we talking? I don't care. Um, that that yeah. sort of thing does isn't not. Life ba- isn't life tough enough with all the things that could have been and weren't uh, <laughs> in your own life? Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so um, I, I find that it's just more clear cut to be able to talk about a movie as it exists. That is, I'll say, that is my philosophy. Okay. It is uh, admittedly sometimes harder to yeah. put that into action when talking about it, about, about movies, because um, the biggest case that I can think of is the Magnificent Ambersons, yeah. um, which I think is, uh, a, I think is a great movie. And I think it's my personal favorite Orson Welles movie, okay. but I also can't help, but I can't help but imagine if his version existed, would it, would that movie be more generally accepted as his masterpiece? Do you know what I mean? The consensus is yes. And he himself said that he thought it was better than Kane. Yeah. That, uh, and so this, this does, cause here's the thing. You and I are on the same page when it comes to like, I don't want to know about what a filmmaker intended. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want him to say it. And when someone says like, oh, but you don't understand like the budget they had to work with. Yeah, I'm sorry. That sucks. That is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, you know, as it turns out, uh, okay, not everybody's Orson Welles, but when Orson Welles was making Othello, 
there came a day when the costumes didn't show up and he decided, okay, well, we still got, we can't spend a day trying to find the costume. So you know what? This scene is going to take place in a Turkish bath and it's one of the best sequences. In, it's maybe the best sequence in the film. Yeah. And one of the best sequences in any uh, Orson Welles film. Yeah. And so, you know, you make do. Oh, the shark doesn't work? Let's get these barrels going. You know, sometimes the 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 best, you know, sometimes a, a director makes his best artistic decisions when things aren't going well. So if there's somebody who is if there's a filmmaker who allows uh, him or herself to be over, you know limited by these limitations and not find a way around them then i think that is a, a function of them and yes i'm painting with a broad brush um so yeah, i not, think but i think either way it shouldn't it's not going to play a part in how i feel about the film right uh, as much I mean, again that's it's easier that's easier said than done but that's what i aim for but when the time comes to talk about blame you know, and talk about it's one thing if someone said if the director himself saying, no, you don't understand. Here's what I was trying to do. But when the director, for the sake of argument, let's say that David Ayer, who did make his own version of Suicide Squad, that was darker and more dour. And then Warner Brothers said, yes, that's all well and good. But Batman versus Superman was dark and dour and people didn't like it. So now this isn't your movie anymore. We are taking it away and we are going to reshoot. We are going to recut. And by the way, we're not even going to recut it. We're going to send it to Trailer Park, who is used. Did you know this? No. The final cut is done by Trailer Park. You know who they are? No. Oh, uh, I, I got to know a lot of them very well, when I was uh, working at EMP and I was making runs with this okay. post-production house, they make trailers. And so the studio, and they, I believe they made the Suicide Squad trailer and it was very popular. And so they gave it to them. And if you watch the movie, you totally get it. The, it's use of musical cues. It's use of montage. It feels like a bunch of two minute sections of a movie, you know, that make up a movie. Wow. These are the decisions that the studio has made. So, and it is unfortunate. Like I can't not know it. I wish that I didn't, but in the end, I can't blame David, David Ayer for this. You know what I mean? Like when it's this level of involvement that makes a movie that could have been serviceable, you see enough potential in the film. Mm -hmm. It could have been serviceable. It could have even been good and compelling. It could have been all the things that you and I were talking about uh, hoping it would be. Okay. And then the, and then the studio <clears throat> changed even the, the soul of it, you know? So if I'm looked to, because I feel like for the most part, we should try to cut directors slack. We tr should try to, you know, not be assholes to them. And this is an instance where, you know, it's, it's a shame that you can't do the Alan Smithy thing anymore. But you, I mean, you can't. I you, thought, you I don't, thought officially you can't. Yeah, no, you can take. I think you can. You can still take your name off. I don't think okay. you can. I, I don't think people use Alan Smithy anymore okay. because I don't think that's. Uh, yeah. Um. I think everyone's on to that. Yeah, I guess once <laughs> the word's out, then yeah. the studio's like, uh, please don't. Um. But yeah, he. I think he could have removed his credit. Okay. I think, so I think. I'm not necessarily sure that I believe what I'm about to say. But okay. I want to put it out there. Sure. If he's willing to take credit for this movie, even if it is just a pragmatic. Uh, move on his point on uh, yeah. his part to um, maintain his relationship in Hollywood because once you're difficult you're difficult sure um, and maybe make more David Ayer movies down the line still if he's willing to live with it on his record yeah then 
we should be allowed to treat it as a part of his record. Yeah, I suppose so. And again, I'm not entirely sure that I believe that, but I do think that yeah. is logically sound. Yeah. It's, you know, and that's, and this is the frustration. Like when I talk about the evils of the studio, this is what I mean, because I don't know who made these decisions. There's only one name I know, and it's David Ayer. Mm-hmm. And so we're put in this, so now he is put in this position of either having to limit himself artistically in the future or now be associated with something that isn't his, that is bad. It's a moneymaker. So I guess there's that, um, but it's bad. And it might be, and he might have a, a future with Warner Brothers because they're like, hey, you took this like a champ. So there's all these other elements that aren't inherently artistic, but it's just, it's so frustrating that Warner Brothers, for reasons that had, of course they did have to do a Suicide Squad, but if Batman versus Superman had been seen as an artistic triumph and did not have the drop off after the first mm. weekend that it did, I think Suicide Squad would have remained the way it was. But like they're trying so bad to like catch up with Marvel and try to do something, uh, trying to sort of not exactly, but try to mirror that uh, that success. Uh, they're just flying in all directions, and the person that gets hurt the most aside of course from the viewer <laughs> is uh is the director and and so stuff like this comes into play when i'm you know trying to be an auteurist and stuff like that and and looking at what looking at the role that that the that the studio played in a film's ultimate failure or success that's the other thing you know, I remember once upon a time, Graham Elwood was on here and we were talking about the natural and he said yeah, that yeah, the original yeah. script was for the character to strike out. And then the studio was like, how about we go very much in the opposite direction? <laughs> and I remember, I, I still remember Gra- uh, Graham saying, he's like, maybe the studio was right, you know, yeah. uh, cause it made for one of the most, in- one of the most memorable sequences in, in any movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, and now we're already, um, getting into, deeper waters here because um this is now about why do we subscribe to the auteur theory yeah. is it because we truly believe this is what happens is it because like with my thing uh, before it just makes it easier to talk about movies if you can uh be more simplistic about who's responsible yeah is it somewhere in between um i do think the auteur theory is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure. Um, I, I think at this point, the director has, um, more power than he or she did. Um, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the 1930s or, or, or forties right. even. I mean, I think the movie that's often held up as the example of like the, the anti-autorist example is Casablanca, right? That's a one that often yeah. gets talked about, even though I don't think that's entirely fair. I think there are definitely some, visual touches that feel like Michael Curtiz to me, but it does it. It that's the movie that people talk about because it came out what the year after Kane. Is that right? Yeah, it's 42. Um, yeah. So I think people often compare those two as yeah. like citizen Kane being the, a purely autorist film and Casablanca yeah. being a pure uh, product of the studio factory and yeah. both of them being masterpieces. And so much of Casablanca is put down to the writers uh, more than the director. Yeah, the I the was it the Epstein's? Is that correct? I don't remember. 
I don't care. I said, I said, I don't care. That's not true. I care very much about writers, but, uh, but we got other things to talk about. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, taking this class was very helpful because I read a lot of Pauline Kael, who I usually don't care for. Uh, but I got to read a lot of, uh, back and forth between Pauline Kael and Andrew Saris. Andrew Saris being a, a big auteur guy and mm-hmm. Pauline Kael having her, having issues with it. Now, Pauline Kael, I think is actually a very good writer, but I think a very sloppy, disorganized thinker. Um, because as she would talk about the auteur theory, she would then bring up, uh, directors that she, first off, she tended to be very limiting in what she thought the auteur theory was. And then she, in, as she was trying to fight against it, she backed right into it, uh, talking about other filmmakers and what they do. It's like, yeah, what they do, Pauline pay attention, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like get with the program here. Um, but one big thing that she was talking about is that uh, in, in sort of uh, reducing some of Andrew Saris's arguments, she does kind of get at, at something that uh, a tourist can kind of uh, fall into, which is, let's look at David Ayer right now. What I think of when I think of David Ayer, which, and I haven't seen very many, many of his directorial efforts. I saw Fury, which mm-hmm. I didn't like that much, but I definitely thought it had a distinct look to it. And I think Suicide Squad I, does too. I think I, I like Fury more than you did. I just think the third act is a disaster and doesn't... That's about right. ...doesn't fit with the, <laughs> with the hour that came before it, which is actually quite good. Yeah, the first, the first two acts are, are very distinct, and, and I liked it a lot. And then the... Th- the third act comes along and that's the thing that there is stuff that I like about the third act, primarily cinematography. I think it's, and it's use of color and that use of color is still there in suicide squad. And so one of the things that I'm reminded of, uh, Pauline Kale talking about the auteurist or the, uh, the, the auteur critic, the one who like really loves this theory. Um, they're at their happiest when a director is being heavily limited by, the studio because then the the artist will like push through mm-hmm. and actually have have to work harder in order to get their own vision across and so so i feel like it's not impossible to look at suicide squad even if it's even if the the david ayer version never comes out i think it's possible to still see it in terms of him because at the very least visually um it does fit with, at least for me, you know, uh, my idea of what he's trying to accomplish, what he tries to accomplish with his films. And I would say, and this gets cut up a lot, but in scenes that seem to remain fairly intact, um, uh, the nature of ensemble and uh, characters interacting with each other in slightly larger groups, which is to say three or more, mm. um, that seems to be retained from like Fury to Suicide Squad. But. But at the, but to get away from like the the auteur theory a little bit, I will say that like you know poor Josh Trank, with Fantastic Four, I mean it is that thing is just astounding to me because he had his movie and there's as I said when I when I talked about it last year, always August it's always August <laughs> uh, when these movies come out, but there's this strange little not it's not great but when they're going to the planet and then they come back and they start to discover their powers and there's some real genuine like body horror stuff going on, especially for the thing. Um, 
Oh, right. And then the human torch who bursts into flame. Can you imagine if you burst into flame right now? It doesn't, not, it, it doesn't hurt, but you're on fire. That's kind of weird. <laughs> and the film seems to understand the emotional impact of what that would be. And then it literally just says one year later, and it's a whole other movie at that point. One year later, the studio in that in, in that year, the studio got involved and changed everything and tried to turn it into a much more conventional superhero movie. And Josh Trank, you know, as you said, like once you're a problem or whatever, whatever it was. Yeah. Once you're difficult, once you're difficult, Hollywood doesn't want anything to do with you. And Josh Trank showed himself to be in Hollywood's eyes difficult. So it's it remains to be seen if he'll ever be allowed to direct a movie again. Um, but I look at. Fantastic Four, and thankfully, you know, thankfully, you can make a clear division between what is the Josh Trank film and what is not, like stuff that he wasn't even present for. Right. Um, and I think while his name was not taken off, like, and maybe he should have done that because in the end, whatever is in the movie, including the credits, that is what that is the go- that is the gospel. Um, but he definitely publicly made a lot of really denounced the movie and did not to, to the extent I don't think David Ayer is doing. Um, I think David Ayer yeah. can play the game a little. Yes, bit Yes, I think that's exactly what he's doing is is playing the game, and I can't uh, blame him for it. But yeah. I, but I, that, what that means, and I'm repeating myself here, is that I have less of a problem blaming him for Suicide Squad once I see it because I'm yeah. obviously going to see it someday. Obviously, um, just <laughs> as we're just as we're going to see everything eventually. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but what if? Uh, and I think you mentioned this on the movie journal. Um, what if when the Blu-ray comes out, there's two versions? What if there's a director's cut? Then how does that change things? How does the, how, how does the director's cut change things? Well, uh, on my list here, there you got your Blade Runner, you got your Brazil, Alien Three, and uh, very and Touch of Evil, and that sort of thing. So, like the director's cut, I think is something that um, can be very valuable. At the very le- at the very least, academically, it's fun to see just how, just exactly what the studio thought it wanted versus what the director was giving them. Um, Alien Three, especially, is fascinating to see in that regard. Um, and I've never seen that uh, assembly. Is that what it's called? The yeah, assembly cut. It's good. Uh, I can definitely. The special effects are still a mess, but uh, but yeah, the um, it definitely is more cohesive narratively and tonally than what they were trying to do. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the assembly cut is, is pretty solid and you know, the, the theatrical cut of Blade Runner is still fine, but it has that, uh, that bored narration by (laughs) Harrison Ford and it has the, the implication of a happy ending. And then there's the, the love conquers all ending of Brazil. Yeah. And I think the, the director's cut sort of, I would say it redeems these movies, but you know, those movies don't ne- didn't necessarily need redemption. Like I feel like if Blade Runner had stayed in its theatrical cut form, I think we'd still be talking about it. Same with Brazil. Um, but, uh, that's interesting. I don't know. Do you think so? Yeah, I think I do. And I think that gets back to the, to, I, before we were talking about the outdoor theory in terms of, uh, pragmatism, but, um, now we can talk about a more, uh, philosophically maybe that, um, no matter what happens, there's something of the soul of the auteur in the movie. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Absolutely. So like, even if they do, you know, Magnificent Amazons is still an Orson Welles film. Yeah. Um, 
even though that one, I think I, I didn't see the Fantastic Four movie, but I think Magnificent Ambersons is a little bit more like that, where I think there is a point at which um, things change. Um, mm-hmm. And I haven't seen it in forever. Um, but uh, in, in any case, uh, I think that's part of the reason that I'm more com- that I'm comfortable with the auteur theory is um, yeah. Terry Gilliam's a great, uh, a great example. Like, um, no matter what they do to it in the end, yeah. they can't change the, they can't completely erase the Terry Gilliamness yeah. of it. Well, and the Walter Murch cut of touch of evil is relatively new. Mm-hmm. Strictly speaking, considering the film came out in 1958, mm-hmm. um, or 57, I don't recall. Um, you know, the theatrical cut of touch of evil was the one that was in circulation for decades. You know, I owned it on VHS and it it wasn't until DVD in fact. And I mean, I, I think it made the round in in some theaters, but it wasn't until DVD that people got a chance to see, you know, it's never official because Wells wasn't there in the room with Walter Murch, but um, the closest thing to Wells, official version um people didn't see that until the mid 90s and so but you know i have a number of movie books that were that were published in the late 80s early 90s that say that say touch of evil is one of the best movies of all time and despite heavy studio interference because like you said the soul of orson wells is all over that movie and and it seemed that no matter how hard they tried now, of course, once you get once you bring reshoots into it, I think that does make a difference. But, um, but no matter how hard they tried, I you know they just can't stifle that. Yeah. What about to change subjects? Okay. Because you mentioned reshoots, and this brings up another um, big auteurist question: What about movies where the reshoots are done by a different uncredited director? Um, I'm thinking. Uh, specifically of the invasion, which I never saw, but the oh, yeah. the Nicole Kidman Daniel Craig version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which yeah, was my a, company worked on those special features. Um, it was officially directed by um, now I'm direct, I'm um, drawing a blank on his name, but the guy who made Downfall, the Hit, the German oh, right, director, yeah, yeah. made the Hitler movie. Why can't I remember his name? Oliver Hirsch. Uh, yeah, something? Oliver Hirschbeagle. Yes. Yeah. Um, it was officially directed by him. But then there were extensive reshoots, which I want to say were directed by the guy who did uh, Fifa Vendetta, James McTeague. Is that his name? That sounds right. Something like that. Oh, that's that's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, oh, do, do you remember, do you remember, remember this story? Because this was a, a, no. a big deal that, like, as far as everyone was concerned, the invasion was wrapped, and they were doing essentially secret reshoots with um, James McTeague. Um, I was aware of it because I had been a PA on the, inv- like a day player oh, PA okay. on the invasion. So I knew that, um, they were, uh, reshooting it at the time. But then what happened was there was a car accident on the set and Nicole Kidman had to go to the hospital and suddenly paparazzi are figuring out like, yeah. Oh, this movie that officially wrapped like two months ago, apparently they're still shooting it and no one knew. Hmm. And that's how the story got out. And then I still never saw it. But, no. um, uh, I mean, is that, uh, I, I guess if I'm the question here, and I don't know the answer to it is if I'm talking about the idea of the soul of the auteur being injected into the movie at some point, when does that happen? Because if, I mean, the, we've talked about editing being the real uh, essence of cinema. Mm-hmm. And if 
um, Suicide Squad is taken away from David Ayer and he has no hand in the editing. Um, to what extent is it even still his movie? Uh, or do you go back further and say if almost half the movie is shot without the director even on set? Yeah. Um, is that his movie? I would say no at that point. Um, I think it's just it's just a movie. I think it's uh, you know, and who knows the 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 invasion could be great. It's not. But wait, did um, you see it? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, and that's and this is where this is where when you get down to the core of the auteur theory, which says the film though collaborative in nature the film is the is ultimately the work of one person when you're writing a novel yes i guess publishers could you know edit it or something like that when you're writing a novel it's yours you're mm-hmm. not you don't have to worry about them bringing in someone else to rewrite stuff you know it's i mean maybe but it's not her yeah of. maybe that happens i don't know yeah whereas like it is a it's a fairly common occurrence with film and you know, this is why the role of the studio does, at the very least, complicate uh, the idea of the director as sole author. Um, because, and that, and this go, plays into you know these much deeper conversations that you and I have had about like everything about the making of the film, everything that the director was trying to do, even. I'm speaking theoretically because of course now everything is recorded. Everything is online. Everything is on disc. So you can find anything you want, but strictly speaking, if it's not in the film, like the film is the final word. Uh, and so the invasion for all intents and purposes is the work of Oliver Hirschbegel. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and so it's even though it isn't. And so it just, it feels so frustrating for me that, Gets me to another question, another issue. Um, I think because I talked about the auteur theory being a self fulfilling prophecy, and I do think that's 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 true. If you're on a movie set, um, the director is generally treated as right. the 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 general of everything. Um, but I also think uh, perpetuating the auteur theory is good business for studios because when the invasion comes out and no one likes it, people blame. Yeah. Oliver Hirschbiegel, they don't blame Warner Brothers. Yeah. You, you know, so it, they it do it with it, actors too, like uh Terrence Howard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it inoculates them in a way yeah. to um to say, Well, I guess we won't work with that guy again, even though it wasn't Oliver Hirschbiegel's fault necessarily that the yeah. movie uh wasn't well received. Um we should probably stop using the invasion example since neither of us has seen that's it. True, that's but, true. But um it is a major example of a movie being largely reshot by a different director. Um uh so I, I guess what I'm uh the 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 way I can bring this back to Suicide Squad is and other movies like this because it seems like the director's cut is has been used uh over the past ten or more years as a way to sell home video copies is saying, Hey, this is something you couldn't see in the theater. Yeah. That's right. The, that's the big uh, thing with uh, Batman versus Superman right now. Right. Or uh, I'm going back to King Arthur, the Antoine Fuqua sure. film in which I, I didn't see in the theater. So I've only seen his cut, which is, um, uh, so I don't, I don't have anything to compare it against, but I know that Antoine Fuqua's King Arthur is not as bad as, 
the reputation that movie has. Right. It definitely is not a great movie, but um, I remember seeing and being like, why do people hate this movie? I mean, yeah. like, it's perfectly fine. Uh, I don't know about that. It's, it's, yeah. The Keira Knight, the character pretty dumb. It's a what, pretty dumb character. Who? I forgot she was that. Uh, yeah. Um, it's a movie about this Merlin guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> by Stephen Delane. Um, but, uh, so if, if it's bad business or if it's good business for the studios to, um, perpetuate the auteur theory, is it then, would it then be bad business for them to put out David Ayer's director's cut of Suicide Squad if it is remarkably better than the, like what, what that was, that what, was the big uh, conversation had last year about uh, Josh Trank's Fantastic Four is that the film now with Suicide Squad, the film's still doing well. It's not having the drop off, whereas Fantastic Four just was dead on arrival. Mm-hmm. And so the studio could have I think they would have had to like add in special effects. I, I don't think he had a full cut. And then they just changed it. Um, so they would have to do some things. But if they did, you know, and it's just like, we have another opportunity. We can release this movie again on Blu-ray in a way that might actually be more satisfying to people. Um, and I think that, some more copies. Exa- yeah, yeah. But I'm not, I'm not sure how many more, especially if you have to finish effects. Right, right. Because um, the example I remember, I can't really believe this hasn't come up before now, is Paul Schrader's Exorcist movie. That's right. Which was released, released in theaters as Rennie Harlan's Exorcist movie. Yeah. Um, but then did come out on DVD yeah. with some hastily finished effects. I don't know if you've seen the Paul Schrader I version. Did, yes, those are hastily finished effects. <laughs> but that doesn't, it doesn't uh, I'm not like that into that. I, I don't care if effects look uh, cheesy. Yeah. Uh, I actually do think... Dominion is what Dominion. the Paul Schrader version is called. I can't remember what the Rennie Harlan version is called. It's, I think it's called Exorcist the Beginning. Exorcist the Beginning. Okay. Yeah. And I never saw his version. But Paul Schrader's version is a pretty cool movie, I have to say. Yeah, it's not bad. I um, wanted it to be better, but uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of Paul Schrader, and so I wanted it to be better, but it's still pretty good. So, but uh, and I don't remember what studio owns The Exorcist. Um, Fox, maybe? Warner Brothers? I can't. I don't actually remember. Uh, I wish I, I... I should be better on that. Like, I, I very seldom know what studio owns what if it's dc warner brothers has it that's all i got (laughs) yeah um yeah i know with a lot of big franchises who has what like star trek is paramount and bond is mgm slash sony yeah like i i know the big ones but yeah i don't know who has the exorcist movies um anyway but that they did it right there they put out they put out both of them yeah um but again i but i i just don't know if it would be awesome and I'd be very interested to see David Ayer's suicide squad yeah. director's cut on, on Blu-ray, but I don't know if the studio is willing to look dumb. <laughs> yeah. And the buck. thing is if they were, if I think you, I think you nailed it. And once again, I'm going to speak ill of the studio. Um, if they could make more money on it, they would do it. I don't think they care if they look dumb. Um, is you know they have something to do. Uh, they have a, a role to play. They've got to make their money, and you know they don't really care if the movie is that particularly good. Or it's like, oh, the people are gonna, oh, people are gonna think we're so dumb if we release this thing. If people are buying it, then if anything, they might be like, oh, good for the studio releasing this. You know, it could actually create goodwill. Um, yeah, and I think. Warner Brothers, I mean, I don't want to get too specific. Warner Brothers in particular, um, 
does put itself out there as a more director friendly studio, um, which is funny given, yeah. given this, but I think they want to, that's why they have longstanding relationships with your Christopher Nolan's and your Clint Eastwood's and stuff. Yeah. Cause they basically get to make whatever they want. Yeah. Um, there, uh, and, um, so maybe it would be, even if it does make them look dumb, it would be good business long term to, to have a mea culpa of sorts and say, yeah. here's the, here's the good. That's, that's assuming it's good. David, his movie could be a yeah. complete disaster in its, in its own way. Yeah. I'm more, I'm more interested to see how different it would be. It could be just differently bad, right. but I'm still academically curious. Um, you know, as somebody who has like the criterion, Mr. Arkadin, which has like three different versions, I'm in, and I've seen two of them. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's always interesting to compare those. Um, now I will say, here's something that I have found to be very helpful for me is by and large, if I'm seeing a summer movie or if I'm seeing a, a franchise film, I go in kind of regardless of whose name uh, it's under, you know, as, as far as the director, uh, I will always assume that this director had probably in the area generously 60% control. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, we talk about, you know, I've been talking about DC. Look at Marvel. Yeah. Marvel is a great example of what we're talking about. And we've talked about on the podcast before about how they hire interesting directors and yet yeah. all their movies kind of look, <laughs> look and feel the same to the point where when you have a director who is quite definitely an auteur and just can't stop being that like Edgar Wright, mm -hmm. he just can't be a part of it anymore. You know, that at least ha happened during, you know, pre-production. Whereas, you know, David Ayer, like it happened after he yeah. was all done. But, um, but yeah. And so in that same way, uh, that, that fits very much into what we, what I was talking about before about, just looking for those moments where there is, um, where that director comes out. Like a big thing for me, I, I was never a huge fan of Guardians of the Galaxy, partially because like, cause I like Slither mm -hmm. and I like Super. And then I see this movie and every once in a while I'll see just a flicker of James Gunn and I'm like, hey, that's fun. It'd be better if they just let him do whatever the hell he wanted. But given what it is, you know, and so... The, going in knowing what the film is uh, saves me the trouble of having to like research stuff outside of it because I'm not going to do it unless it just but happens to come to me. Does that and there's I mean there's no way to have a completely pure viewing experience, but does that depurify the viewing experience if you're going in knowing that if you're going in looking for James Gunn where you can find him and or looking for David Ayer where mm -hmm. you can find them find him are you um not giving the movie your full attention then uh it's it, I, honestly it's probably more a thing it's probably more a, a something i do on the way on the way home okay where it's you see the film as it is and then it's just you know in general like you after the movie is over you're thinking about the parts that work for you and the parts that don't and then you see and then you notice like the parts that work for me are the parts that I can th that seem pretty unique to this director. Mm -hmm. The parts that don't, unsurprisingly, seem fairly generic. And I'd say that uh, studios, by and large, tend to uh, embrace generic um, as opposed to unique. Um, 
And so it's the same with somebody like a, like a Sam Raimi. I loved the first Superman. You and I both, uh, sorry, Spider-Man. Right. You and I both love Spider-Man 2 as maybe. Maybe the best comic book yeah. movie or superhero movie there is. I believe it is the second behind the Avengers. Okay. Um, but it's close. Spider-Man 2 is astounding. And then you see Spider-Man 3 and. Which I didn't. <laughs> right. And that's the thing. I didn't know going in that there was as much studio involvement. But once I, once I saw it, I thought that. Yeah. The, I, yeah. I don't even need to be told. And then afterwards, it's like, oh, yeah, this was all over the place. Like, it was the studio that insisted, you know, Venom be in there. And the f- character feels so shoehorned in that it's almost as though Sam Raimi, in in the way he uh, wrote and edited and directed the character, was trying to convey to me, the viewer, <laughs> hey, look, I'm, I don't like this either. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know... But then, the, and honestly, one of the big things that people don't like about Spider-Man Three uh, is when you know Peter Parker Parker goes bad and does his little like disco walk. That seems like the most Sam Raimi thing in the film, which is maybe why it doesn't fit with the overall movie. Is because by this time the studio really wanted to, you know, they wanted a guarantee it was going to be a hit. Meanwhile, it was going to be a hit no matter what financially. Um, but sorry, I've been bouncing around all, all over the place. That's, uh, that's all we've been doing. What else is on your list of things you wanted to talk we've about? We've covered a good number of them. Um, we did not mention I Am Legend, which is a well, film. Well, I don't know about the studio involvement there. Because I know. I, it, I mean, the, the finale and how it differs so greatly from the original story. And I did do a little bit of research as I. Okay. When I thought of it and typed it out, I was like, well, let me see if there's any. Because, I mean. The movie differs from the original story in a lot of a lot of ways. Yes, right. Most, I mean, partially by taking place on Manhattan instead yes. of uh, in Los Angeles, right? I guess what I mean is like thematically, you know, the realization that the character is meant to have that the character has in the story, right? That actually gives way to the the title itself. Um, the studio got involved, I think in the pre-production level and on the writing level, I don't think it was a function of going in and meddling with stuff that was there. Um, and they just said like, we can't have something this dark. We can't, you know, have Will Smith be, uh, the monster. Um, we need to have it. We need to, this, the title to mean something notably different than what it did in the original story. And you and I are very quick to say that the first two acts of that movie are amazing. Yeah. It's, Uh, People who have listened a long time are probably tired of me saying this, but the first 60 minutes of I Am Legend is a goddamn masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, With, with I genuinely think, the best performance by Will Smith. Probably, yeah. Out there. Um, And then it, yeah, it goes so, so completely off the rails that it's, it's heartbreaking to me. Like, I have the DVD and I've watched the movie again. Maybe because every time I watch it, I secretly hope that it will end differently. Yeah. But, uh, it is heartbreaking to me how, um, completely I am legend falls apart. You're like Ben Affleck, uh, in goodwill hunting. Like the best part of your day is when you're watching, uh, I am legend and hoping, hoping <laughs> that this time the ending will be different. Yeah. And that's the thing is, I mean, it's so, I mean, you can just, t- who is that? Uh, Louis Leterrier. Is that how you say it? Um, no, that's Francis Lawrence. Did that. Francis Lawrence. That's yes. right. Who am I thinking of? Oh, Louis did, uh, uh, the incredible Hulk. And then what's the he other one? Transporter. Yeah. Right? I don't know why I'm getting this mixed up anyway. Uh, yeah. Francis Lawrence. Now was, you see me. That's what I'm thinking of. That's not what I'm thinking of. But, I'm trying oh, to think what Louis Leterrier. He did, uh, brothers Grimsby. 
Oh, did he? Okay. Yeah. I didn't see that. Which is an odd, odd choice. But, um, yeah, Francis Lawrence. And so, you know, uh, certainly that movie put him on the map for me. Um, but if you, you hadn't seen Constantine because I hadn't, that's right. Uh, but the first two acts and then the last act, they seem like uh, completely different tones. The first Mm -hmm. two acts are patient. It's more standard sci-fi. It's character driven. Yeah. And it really draws you into this world. And then the last act is just like, Hey, every other movie, what do you think? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the character we've been watching for the first hour of I am legend should not at any point be blowing dudes away with a machine gun. Yeah. That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. He's, and I recognize you need to have a, a, a climax and I even understand why the studio wouldn't want a philosophical climax, but you can still do that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's so frustrating, but, um, and in the same way, like a movie that the only person that has talked about this movie in the last 10 years is me and maybe even 20, which is, uh, Norman Jewison's other people's money. Um, <laughs> But you know, I mean, you saw it. Uh, wait, have I seen that one? It's with Danny DeVito. Um, I as, think I uh, saw it. It's based on a play. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Great performance by Danny DeVito based on uh, based on a play that is well written, but it has a tag at the end. Like, right. There's a clear ending, and it's obviously the ending of the play, and it's a downbeat ending. And it's downbeat thematically, and it's downbeat for our main character. And then you can tell the studio's like, okay, look, we like everything about this, but we want it to be happy. Yes, we recognize that in, in doing this, we actually negate everything about it. Uh-huh. And so there's just a little like three minute thing where, uh, where you know, they lower in this uh, God from the rafters to, uh, <laughs> to say, oh, what do you think of this? And honestly, because that part is feels so tacked on, I'm able to talk about other people's money as if it didn't exist. Yeah. Because it's not strewn throughout. It is clearly like, Everything is as it's supposed to be. And then there's this, which just reeks of the studio. Um, that to go all the way back. Maybe we can end going all the way back to the silent era. That reminds me of the last laugh. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. Uh, although that, that, and that, uh, um, Renaud took that direction and decided to make the absurdity of it part of the movie. Yeah. Uh, in a way, because yeah, the last laugh is a movie that ends with such a ridiculously happy ending yeah. after being such a downer that um, it's there's a there's a very intentional irony to it. That's the thing, and that goes to what you're saying that like, and and in a way, maybe that could this could be an example of you know the auteur theory being proven, you know, mostly right, which is even though the studio told Murnau, like this needs to have a happy ending. He found a way to make it uniquely Murnau and actually make this happy ending, which is still fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, manages to make it somehow more cynical than if the yeah. film had ended yeah. the way he wanted it to. Um, and it reminds me of a story you told me many years ago about you in high school. Okay. I'm going to tell you as you, your own story. Okay. That, uh, you know, you were involved in the high school theater department as I was. And anytime you're part of a play, they will have a program and you have to write your own little bio. And you wrote a bio that apparently was a little downbeat. And I think your teacher said, can you, can you write like a, like a real, like a happier bio? And you wrote David Bax is happy, 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 happy all the time. 
Do you remember this? I don't remember this at all. Are oh. you sure it was me? Yes. And it sounds like something I would do. I shouldn't it, yes, ask absolutely. that question. I, rem- I it's remember one doing of the, that. You told me that story and it was like one of my one of my earliest memories of you. I'm like, ha that's funny. That guy's an asshole. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that is, that is the auteur of David Bax coming through. Someone says, make it happy. It's like, all right, asshole, here we go. Um, but yeah, so that's, uh, that's what the last laugh reminds me of. You got the last laugh in that situation, David. Uh, well, you can find me, uh, getting the last laugh and being happy, happy, happy all the time. Eric von Stroheim's greed. We can move on. Okay. <laughs> you can find all that stuff at battleshipretention.com. Uh, that's where there's all sorts of movie reviews and uh, links to this podcast and that podcast and all the other happy, happy, happy podcasts. Uh, you can email me at david at battleshipretention.com. You can email Tyler at tyler at battleshipretension.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Uh, Tyler's on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Uh, and you have another podcast. I do. It's called More Than One Lesson. What's That's going right. on over there this week? Uh, this week, uh, my co-host Reed and I talk about uh, 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 Dennis. Uh, sorry, I was thinking uh, Denis Levant. That's a different guy. Uh, Dennis or Denny uh, Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Villeneuve's uh, Prisoners. Oh. Um, and uh, with the companion film uh, Mystic River. And it was a very good uh, conversation, and it's a, it's a. I don't love prisoners. I'm but there's glad a lot you of, made it through watching those two movies without slitting your wrists. I didn't watch them all in one day. Uh, Reed did, and I was like, <laughs> "How did you even manage to get here without driving off the road on yeah. purpose?" Uh, but yeah, it's I'm I'm happy with the episode. Um, my other podcast is about television. It's called Hey, Watch This with Paul and David, uh, and this week we are talking about. Um, the season two finale of unreal and the season one premiere of the get down on Netflix, uh, which I haven't watched yet. And I'm very super excited to, to watch it. Um, that's it, I guess. Thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.